Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. This is Gretchen Gagel of Continuum Advisory Group. I'm here today on The Built Revolution with Ed Shine. Ed is a professor emeritus uh, from MIT and an author of numerous books, one of my favorites being Organizational Culture and Leadership. And we're thrilled to have Ed on the program today. Thanks, Ed, for joining us. I'm also joined by my son, who is now partnered with me. He has had 30 years of managerial experience out here in Silicon Valley, so he helps me keep up to date. There you go. Peter, so great to have you join us as well. Glad to be here. Great. So tell me a little bit, um, when I started my PhD program four years ago, it it became apparent uh, that you're one of the most recognized experts on organizational culture. How did you get interested in culture in the first place? Well, it goes all the way back to my own training as a social psychologist. Uh, I got interested in groups from the beginning. And if you think about what is a group, a group is something that has a leader. A group is something that develops and works with a culture. And so leadership group and culture are, in my mind, all part of the same package. And in my book, I always say leadership and culture are two sides of the same coin, because in a young company, The leaders create a culture, so to speak, the norms and values by which that organization will live. And if they're successful, that culture will then dominate uh, the values and behavior of the people, including even what is considered appropriate leadership. So conceptually, it's always been there in terms of experience Uh, It was brought home to me when I was simultaneously consulting for Digital Equipment Corporation, a quintessential North American engineering company, and quarterly flying over to Basel, Switzerland, to consult with Siba Geige, an old worldwide chemical conglomerate, both successful, but about as different as organizations could ever be. So culture had to surface as the the real explanatory variable of how two big companies, both successful, can feel, look, and act completely differently. That's that's the nub of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's one of the reasons I really enjoyed in specifically your book about um, leadership and culture. And I think leaders, especially in our industry, are starting to understand more about the need to uh, uh, the need to understand their culture and be thoughtful about their culture, especially when they're trying to implement 
change within their organization? Well, I would strengthen that statement by saying the leader has to discover, if they don't already know it, that they are both the culture carriers and culture creators. That the culture is the thing that they really have to manage or it will manage them and they will lose control of their organization. So leadership and culture management uh, are, for me, integral. Mm-hmm. And what do you think? Um, it's interesting because I was visiting with a the CEO of a very large engineering firm a few months ago that's been working on a culture change. They've kind of identified the culture that they have and the culture that they desire. What do you think is are some of the most important things a leader can do when trying to make a culture transition? <laughs> Behave differently. It's very easy. <laughs> If the leader doesn't start behaving differently personally, if they don't set a new example, uh, if they don't display either through what they pay attention to or what they let go, if, if they let things go and settle for certain things, whether they know it or not, that's the culture of the future. So if they're really concerned about change, let's say the the leader discovers that they are not good enough in the safety arena. The leader can't just say safety is important, but remember profits. The leader has to, as uh, they did for a while in uh, in Kaiser Aluminum, uh, not Kaiser Aluminum, in Alcoa, where the boss said, no, safety is number one. It overrides everything. Every meeting will start with a safety discussion. Every project will be analyzed, not in terms of profitability, but safety. If the leader doesn't do that, the changes won't happen. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. And and one thing that I've observed in 30 years of my own leadership experience is sometimes when you're a leader and you say that the boat's going to sail in a different direction, so to say, that maybe we're going to increase our focus on safety or lean practices or whatever, that sometimes there's people that are resistant that you have to make difficult decisions about as well. And what has your experience been with that as far as getting, getting people to get in the boat with you? Well, the processes and structures of the organization are also under the leader's control. So if the leader says from now on, we're going to be a team organization, but leaves the reward system to be totally individualistic, he can yell and scream all he wants, or she, but it won't happen unless the structure and the processes, the reward systems, are also changed to fit the new values that the leader wants. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's leader behavior has to be consistent with the new values. Yeah. Now, I do have to add something. We have found out in, in recent times and in some industries that the change process doesn't necessarily start with the leader. It's quite possible that, say, one of the engineering divisions that has had a particular safety problem for a couple of quarters starts a new program at that level which really sets a new 
tone in terms of safety culture. And the question then is whether whoever is on top of them will understand it and support it, even though they may not have initiated it. Mm -hmm. That gets to your agility point, because that means the top leader, he or she sometimes have to be agile enough to allow culture change in a unit or a group down in the organization because they recognize that that could be an important either beginning of a new business or change the existing business in some fundamental way that they would support. So the leader is always involved some way or another, either as the initiator or as the supporter. Yeah, and you bring up a really important topic for our industry safety. And I know that that's a passion for you and in the engineering and construction space. And that recently, actually a few months ago, I was talking to some executives at a gas utility and I didn't realize that 15 years ago, you'd worked with this gas utility to um, to drive a, a different culture around safety. How did you, how did you develop that passion around safety? Well, uh, let's be clear. I didn't drive anything. <laughs> this was Con Edison in New York, and they had been under indictment for an environmental event, and the judge had said their culture is the problem, and so they had invited two environmental lawyers and me to be what they called an environmental quality review board, which covered health, uh, safety, and the environment. And this little group, the three of us, reported directly to the board. And our job was to help the organization become environmentally responsible and more concerned about safety and health. So I worked there as a consultant for about 15 years helping them, but the driving was done by them in order to get off probation and in order to evolve their own sense of responsibility around all these things. Gas is one of the divisions, but electrical, heat, air conditioning, they they covered everything. And so safety in these different units uh, became almost separate issues because they had different safety problems And the problem of our little group was to get them to think integratively about all this and particularly to train the entire organization that safety was really their most important value, even if that meant uh, missing schedules or uh, missing profit targets because nothing was worse for that kind of utility, as we have found out recently in in Pacific Gas and Electric, than a major accident that kills people. Mm -hmm. You kill people, you're in deep trouble. Right. When you bring up a couple of really interesting points, as I tell my clients sometimes, imagine the worst thing that can happen to you and then do something about it ahead of time. Don't wait until that painful occurrence of that that accident where you're killing people or you're indicted or et cetera, you know, be proactive about it. But they they were effusive in their praise for you. 
and and you're right, they were driving the change. But why do you think that, uh, you know, kind of the longitudinal study of working with them over 15 years, why do you think they were successful if, in, in making that change in their culture? Well, for many reasons, I think uh, they began to be careful in whom they appointed to be CEO and COO and the heads of the particular divisions, the electrical or gas or whatever, steam, I guess, was the other one, uh, because they realized that if the whole management structure doesn't cascade those values down systematically right down to supervisors, that all the other programs like having an ombudsman and having private lines and having timeout programs, all those things only work if the supervisors and middle managers remind everyone every day that whatever else they're doing, it's got to be done in such a way that we don't kill people. Mm-hmm. And I mention that again because I think the the preoccupation preoccupation with OSHA numbers is a distraction. I think slips, trips, and falls are easy to measure, but they're not what's important. What's really important is not killing anyone or damaging them sufficiently that they can't work anymore. And I found it was very hard to get that message through uh, the system at the level of the middle manager, where they had a very good time out program, but the middle managers would say to a supervisor, how come your group has so many timeouts? Well, in that sentence was the kiss of death to the program, mm-hmm. because that supervisor then started to compromise. And when one of the employees would call a timeout, the supervisor would say to that employee, what, you again? Are you a wimp or something? Uh, so it's the middle managers that had to enforce it. And the only way they would enforce it is if top management sent that signal through every echelon. And I think it took them 10, 15 years to realize how important it was to get it through every echelon, not just have somebody run a program and announce it uh, and then hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I have a client that's a uh, pipeline contractor. And if I come to their office and I don't back my rental car in, somebody comes and finds me. And they very politely say, Miss Gagel, everybody backs their car in at our in our parking lot. And it's those kinds of things that that's when I sit up and take notice and say, wow, they have a real culture around safety. I, I want to bring up another point, too, because I watched a YouTube video of you uh, years ago talking about occupational culture. And it really struck a nerve with me because we think about culture at the organizational level, but I'd never thought about occupational culture. And when you say architect or you say engineer, um, something springs to mind that describes that occupation. How did, how did you get interested in occupational culture? Well, there, it, it was obvious, first of all, 
that the engineers in Digital Equipment Corporation, who were all electrical engineers, were completely different type people from the chemical engineers that were operating in Sibagaygi. And then when, when I got into Con Edison, I discovered that they too saw themselves as an engineering company. And what I realized was that one of the common values of engineering as an, as an occupation is to measure things and to trust the numbers. So one of the important events that happened in Con Edison was a, uh, a transformer was hit by lightning, and that meant all kinds of oil was spilled into the immediate neighborhood. And the guy who ran that transformer knew all about it, had measured it for years, and knew that there were no PCBs, the dangerous chemical, in the transformer oil. Nevertheless, when he measured the environment, there were very high PCB levels. And the engineering part of him kicked in and said, that can't be because I have measured this transformer for 20 years and I know that there are no PCBs in it. So he took those samples to be remeasured by the, the Con Ed lab. It took a week. They confirmed very high levels, which meant that during that week, lots and lots of people, firemen and others, had been exposed to PCBs, and it became another major incident where Con Edison was uh, considered to be irresponsible. And the question is, why didn't this engineer believe the environmental numbers uh, because he, as an engineer, trusted his own numbers. Mm-hmm. And they, they had to then put in a new rule that says, if you discover any evidence of environmental stuff, you report it within 12 hours or you're fired. Mm-hmm. They had to get very specific to not let people make their own judgment about what is a valid number and what isn't. Right. On another occasion, that same kind of thing happened with the architects who had blueprints about some big pylons that were in the East River that had to be shored up with concrete. And so they they dumped a huge load of concrete on top of those pylons to shore them up and the concrete disappeared. Nothing happened. Hmm. So somebody said, well, let's send some divers down there and take a look. And the architects argued vehemently, no, we know that thing is down there, so just try it again. Again, nothing happened. They finally sent divers down to discover that the pylons that were on the blueprints simply had not, either they had disappeared or eroded or something. Hmm. To me, that attitude in the architects or in the engineers is what I associate with their occupation. It has nothing to do with the company they're in. It's how they've been trained to think. Mm -hmm. And so I've now observed that in doctors. I've observed it in nurses. I've observed it in almost every organization. Well, take, 
take the modern organizations uh, that have software engineers. They're, they're a different occupation, the software engineers. Right. They have different attitudes, different values. So to me, it's very obvious that you've got to look at occupations as separate from organizations. Yeah. And then to pile on top of that, you have to look at nationalities and language. Oh, and which reminds me of the book you recommended for me, 11 Nations, I think is the title of the book about the different cultures we have within North America. 13. 13. 13. I left two out. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting to think as a, as a leader about how many different things you're trying to juggle, the organization's culture, the occupation's the geographic nature of uh, culture. So I want to shift gears a little bit because uh, you have a book coming out August 18th. Uh, tell us about the book. Sorry, Gretchen, August 14th. <laughs> August 14th. <laughs> it's about the, the importance of openness and trust at a time when there's a sort of leadership myth about the, the lone leader, the I lone leader, the great icon we're sort of arguing that leadership happens anywhere in an organization. It happens uh, most importantly in groups. And um, ultimately the measure of the leader is the ability to get the most out of the groups that, that the leader works with. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't necessarily these um, great individual attributes that, um, you know, there are a lot of great books out there that describe the, important individual attributes that a leader must have. We're not trying to recreate one of those books. This is about recognizing that a leadership happens anywhere in an organization with people trying to do something new and something better. It doesn't have to be that icon at the top. And, you know, ultimately it comes down to can you get your groups working together better because of the bonds of trust and communication openness that allows information to flow more easily. Uh, because, uh, you know, as we go into a future that's going to be, you know, we use the term VUCA, volatile, uncertain, uh, complex, and ambiguous, we're entering a world where um, information flow is is critical. And if you're in a model that is um, built around transactional leadership, which uh, ultimately is built more about who's going to win the argument. That reinforces antipathy and mistrust and hiding so, information. Hiding information, yeah. Subterfuge is sort of the is the way you win in a transactional mm-hmm. leadership model. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to quickly free associate, summarize what the book's about, and I'll leave it now to Ed for another comment. Or another question. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting that you're bringing all this up, Peter. I'm, I'm actually teaching as an affiliate professor at the University of Denver a course in their online MBA program called Leading with Integrity. And it's interesting because tomorrow night is the second class and it's all about teams. And the one thing that I am thinking about preparing for this coursework, and we're talking about, you know, Tuckman's forming, storming, norming, and performing, and social contracts, and the development of norms and things is, is I 100% agree with you, the most important thing that a leader does is help groups of people be successful. 
And our work with construction teams, we just did a closeout on a $4 billion program that we help them implement a certain type of culture around lean that in our industry, it's these project teams that are coming together and making things happen that that is the most important aspect of leadership. So do you have a couple of key tips from the book that you'd like to share as far as I'm a leader, I'm, uh, I'm trying to enable a, a project team and being successful. What are some of the behaviors that I can do as a leader? Well, the, the key is the new word we're introducing, personize. I think the most important behavioral difference between a transactional leader and a humble leader is that the transactional leader only cares about whether my colleagues, subordinates, bosses are in their proper roles. I don't particularly care about their personalities because they're all replaceable. It's the role that matters. In humble leadership, on the contrary, because of the way Peter described the problem-solving process having to be open and personal, the humble leader has to get to know the individual in the role, whether that individual is the person's uh, hierarchical superior, whether it's a teammate, or most importantly, whether it's all the people who report to her. If, if the humble leader doesn't get to know the individuals, the individuals will have no reason to trust the leader. So it's all about building trust and openness in order to let information flow. And that is done by personizing, namely getting interested in being more personal yourself. The simplest example, if I'm a personizing subordinate, I walk into my boss's office and my intention is to get to know the boss. I notice a picture on the wall of his family or her family. I walk up and say with a big smile, is that your family? That simple question forces some degree of personal contact. Mm -hmm. if, if the boss doesn't want to be personal, I'll find out right away by the way they he or she reacts. Right. But on the other hand, if, if he or she says, yeah, let me tell you about them, now we're in already even in that first contact in a more personal relationship. And that that's at the behavioral level, what I think will be most important is, is to get personal with each other. We, we uh, talk a lot about how at some level, a very deep level professional distance, which was, you know, has always been something that you're supposed to strive for that, that, um, that ability to, to sort of separate work from life. Well, professional distance is just going to get in the way. Right. If you're not really able to to share what's really going on um, because you're maintaining this professional distance, something's going to get missed. And the the you know complexity that and and pace that companies are facing just can't you know can't uh, run that risk that things get missed. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because when we start with a team of people on a project, 
we have them do introductions in the room. We don't ask them to tell us what their role is. We ask them to tell us something really interesting about themselves that it would take us 10 years to learn. Yeah. And it, and it's, or we do a, another exercise called 10 things in common and it, and it really helps humanize everybody. Um, I just did a podcast with a gentleman, Brent Darnell, who's a good friend, who's been working on emotional intelligence in the construction industry for the last 20 years. It sounds like some of this emotional intelligence would tie into this um, personization, so to say. It, it does, but it's, it's a dangerous concept because it's one of those individual trait things. And then we immediately ask, uh, well, should we rate our supervisors on their emotional intelligence? Right. That could be the kiss of death. Yeah. What we've also said in the book is that personizing is what we do with friends and relatives, and we already know how to do that. Mm. What we've somehow created is norms in the traditional management culture that you're not supposed to do that at work. Right. But it's not a skill that we don't already have. Yeah. That's very important. And that's why emotional intelligence bothers me because it's one of these things that you can have more or less of. And I think that immediately pushes us back into the individualized uh, leader hero model. Oh, he's great because he's got a lot of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong way to think about it. Yeah. And one of our messages to try to sort of take a little bit of the pressure off what leading is supposed to be. If you think of it in terms of what I really need to do is create what, what in the, in the book we refer to as level two relationships, that's not that hard to do. You know how to do that. And uh, instead of thinking of the seven things that you have to do every day as a leader, Think about, you know, the one basic principle that you have to get your teams communicating deeply with you so that you don't miss things. Mm -hmm. That's a great way of thinking about it. And that is when I, having worked with an emotional intelligence coach, our whole team did it together so that collectively we would build, build a skill set around the relationships that we could ultimately build with each other. And um, that's a great way of thinking about leaders and how you're relating, uh, how you're relating to people and, and trust. We talk a lot about trust in the construction industry because it's, there's a, a huge void of it on a lot of our construction projects. Speed of Trust is one of my favorite books on trust. Do you share some tips in your book about how to build trust, leader follower trust? Absolutely. It's, it's all about learning together. Mm. You know, you take it for granted because of the industry you're in that it's a team job. It's complicated. It involves a lot of different kinds of information and trust, therefore, is, is essential. My hunch is that the way in which you build it is by having team events, as you just described, for a team together to say, how can we collectively increase our emotional intelligence makes complete sense to me because it's a group activity. Uh, there are two, two books right now that I'm, I'm very enamored of. One is uh, General McChrystal's book called Team of Teams. Mm -hmm. 
where he highlights how important it is for the team to learn together. And that is, of course, the main point of Amy Edmondson's book called Teaming, where it's not about how you compose the team or the individual abilities of the members. It's all about once the group is formed, you have to share experiences and learn together. Only in that learning process can you calibrate each other and see how others will react. And that's how trust is built. Mm -hmm. It's not built on principles. It's built on shared experience. Yeah. Two of our principals, Mona Hagag and Clark Ellis, are going to be thrilled to hear you talk about Team of Teams. It's I think they're a walking advertisement for that book. And it and it is a great book. I haven't read the other one, Teaming, but I'll look forward to reading that. But as you said, it is about shared experiences and vulnerability plays into that. Some of the research I've looked at at the most effective teams, they have this ability to be vulnerable with one another. And I think that's something that we could improve upon in our industry. So we're coming to the end of our time. Is there any other things specifically that you'd like to share with our with our listeners here in the engineering and, and construction industry? Well, I'd like to go back to the very beginning and, and say that it's all about groups. Uh, if you take the group as your fundamental unit rather than the individual, the group builds a culture, the group has a culture, the culture drives what the group does, the group creates leadership opportunities. If you can stay focused on it's about groups, everything is about groups, you'll get the other important part of the message because in your industry, you seem to realize that. You'd be amazed at how in in medicine, they also realize it. But there are a lot of industries that are still completely built on individual job descriptions and individual roles. They don't have a clue how important it is to understand groups, group dynamics, intergroup relationships. And I commend you highly for having those insights, which are crucial to your industry. Thank you. Uh, Ed, Peter, it's been so great to talk to you today about culture and leadership. I'm really looking forward to reading your book when it comes out, August 14th. And the name of the book again is? Humble Leadership. Humble Leadership. We'll look forward on August 14th. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to both of you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.